Welcome to Healing and Horsemanship, a podcast exploring the many healing paths we walk with horses. I'm your host, Shannon Ray Riley of Wild Willing Therapeutics and Training. This show is supported by The Herd. The Herd offers monthly bonuses for members, including access to a growing content library on all things health, wellness, and horses. For more on membership, visit wildwhaling.com slash podcast. Thank you for joining me on this wild ride. And now, on to the show. Welcome to episode three of Healing and Horsemanship. In this episode, I am going to get into an interview I had with Trent Peterson of The Wild and Us. And before I launch into everything we talked about, I'll give you a little bit of background about Trent. But first, a little origin story in case you're not familiar with his work which is amazing. You'll definitely want to check out his website, The Wild and Us, and his page on Instagram, at The Wild and Us. He, for those who don't know, has a sort of Tony Robbins-level motivational tale, and his perspective on the world is honestly just so inspiring. (laughs) Oh, delightful, wonderful, It's uplifting, and I just really appreciate that sometimes people who have been through the worst pain and the greatest loss can turn around and have this view on life that pushes them to go and strive and work towards these otherworldly goals that they might not have ever had in the first place or felt were impossible to begin with, but they just find their path in this beautiful way and they aren't looking back even though they carry you know this pain and loss they are just the most happy or maybe even happy isn't the most appropriate word but they are the most they are the most vital people to be around because they aren't wasting any time and they know that every second on this planet is precious We don't know how much time we have. And for those of us who are drawn to horses, we exist in a time when every obstacle is against us to spend time with them and to even feel like we're mentally sane for spending time with them. Even if we can eke out the time, the energy, the money to go and pursue horsemanship and to go and just interact with them in any way, our culture is up against us to basically convince us that it is a thing of the past or a luxury to be had. And so I really had a great conversation with Trent about this. He puts it in perspective and he sort of helps usher us back to this primitive look at our existence. It's both refreshing and Tony Robbins level motivational. That's maybe the best way that I could put it. So I first spoke with Trent in January of 2022 
and I actually sat down to interview him and I published the interview on my blog, which is still up on my website at wildwilling.com blog. You can scroll down a bit to find it. But it basically includes his whole background, his origin story of how he came onto his path, how he became a saddle maker and a leather craftsman, and you're going to want to check that out. If you're not already familiar with his work, he posts a lot about his origin story and what really got him into this way of life on his Instagram. But we don't get as much into that in this conversation, so... Yeah, you'll probably want that backstory just to understand his perspective and what we talk about a little better. And I want to also mention before I even get into this interview, I first became drawn to talking to Trent because he rode the Pacific Crest Trail covering 2,600 miles from Mexico to Canada on horseback, and better yet, riding previously wild BLM Mustangs. And BLM, for those who aren't familiar, stands for Bureau of Land Management. They are a federal agency of the United States that manages the wild horses and burros found on federal lands. So, you can essentially adopt a Mustang or a burro who has no training, no level of interaction with humans outside of being rounded up, and for a very small fee, adopt them, bring them home, acclimate them to touch, to grooming, to saddling, to leading, to haltering, all the good stuff. And then they are basically the best companions for endurance, for packing, for wilderness exploration, because they are made by the wilderness. So... I've talked to Trent extensively about Mustangs, and I will always want to nerd out about Mustangs. I am just so enraptured at the thought of completing a ride like that, especially with Mustangs. And so I want to also bring up that Trent is a member of the Long Riders Guild, which is an incredible international organization of equestrian explorers that serves as a historical museum, expedition journal, and guild hall, which invites equestrian explorers and travelers who have completed a continuous ride of at least 1,000 miles into their brotherhood-sisterhood of equestrian explorers. So... Yeah, I've essentially been dreaming of becoming a long rider since I (laughs) found out you could do that as a teenager and was hearing the call of the wild. Sadly, I have not ever done a ride or an adventure like that, but I'm just trusting that one day the time will be right for me to do an amazing trip like that and especially to reconnect my Mustangs to the wilderness and just bring back the wild in them and in myself. For those of us who feel the call of the wild in us, regardless of our background or our abilities or our knowledge and skill, I think 
Trent is a great role model on this path because he shows that he didn't grow up doing these things like wilderness packing, saddle making, or even making kick-ass packing saddles. He came onto his path later in life and as he speaks to in our conversation, actually learned later that one of his ancestors was a avid packer and he mentions that it feels as though your ancestors can live through you and especially when you do things that are similar to what they had done in their lives it's the sort of gratifying experience and so you truly can embrace our human experience that we've had for thousands of years and horses are a vehicle to do that they're a channel, a portal. They're not simply a tool. They have not changed that way of life. They're merely existing in the walls that we've built around them. And honestly, their health is worse for it in many circumstances. So any way that we can reconnect to the wildness in us, whether it's through a long ride or a hike in the wilderness or learning about our anatomy and physiology and our ancestors way of life that we can exist in a radically different way and we can still find harmony with our technological advancements but we don't have to forsake the roughness and the toughness of spirit and on that note in this interview We really talk about something that I must include a trigger warning of because I'm imagining many people having a hard time hearing it, just these two words in a sentence together, horse and meat. Yeah, we go there. We talk about horses as meat and not as promoting them to be eaten or wishing that to be a solution to something like the BLM's Wild Horse and Burrow program, that is definitely not a simple solution in from my perspective. But I really just admire that Trent so bluntly brings that up because while it's important to acknowledge and identify the emotions that we have in relation to horses, I think that oftentimes we can demonize one another because we either anthropomorphize or we become anthropocentric, meaning that we are essentially putting ourselves on a pedestal and everything is below us, or during anthropomorphizing, we are bringing everything to our level and thinking that Other animals must be experiencing things exactly as we are. So we get into, you know, how to manage horses in alignment with their nature, how to let them be wild, but also, of course, not neglect them, and how to deal with all of these cultural associations and taboos that we've been kind of entrapped by. It's just important to unpack them, not that I'm trying to convince you that horses should be meat by by any measure. I honestly just think it's really, really important to look at our cultural baggage 
and reflect on our individual beliefs so that we can be clear about what we think is best in relation to them and maybe to unfilter all of the ways that they might be telling us what is best. I think that if we come to them with such a loaded idea or perspective, there's not really any opening there to hear what they're telling us. So be flexible, be open-minded, and please don't send in hate mail because we're not advocating horses should be eaten, but I think it's important to discuss. Horses are meat and we're predators, and other predators definitely see them as meat. So there's a disconnect happening there, and I think when you manage horses as wild, but then you say, no, but they can't be eaten by anything, well then we're still managing them as a domestic animal. So let's get some clarity there. And I'm definitely going to devote another episode to talking about the BLM's Wild Horse and Burrow program because that is something I've studied so extensively and I love talking to other people about. So there will be more interviews down the road talking to experts in the wild horse community for sure. But there's my trigger warning for you guys. And as far as other things that we covered in this interview, we talk about living today like there's no tomorrow, doing what you love as much as you can because you don't know how long you'll be able to do it, what our ancestors would think of the way we live now, and how healing it is for us to do things that allow them to live through us, how we define the word wild as a harmony within and between ourselves and all of the natural world, and a belief that those who categorize wildness as otherness or recklessness are never going to know what that word truly means. We talk about Trent's dad's words, that whatever you do, do it with a purpose, and how to coexist with fear and the belief that everything you want in life is on the other side of fear. And then I wanted to mention a little glitch that happened in this interview was at the beginning of the recording where I'm introducing Trent and it briefly cut out on my end. So it went dead silent mid-sentence while I'm asking him to give a little background about his work and whatnot. So if you notice an awkward segue there, that's what happened. And then later on in the discussion when we're talking about fear i quote trent's words and i wanted to just mention here that full quote because i only gave part of it in the interview so he wrote quote in packing we plan for the worst and hope for the best accidents will happen and no one is immune to wrecks there's endless possibilities to get hurt three days away from anything It's our job to project a calm energy and be collected when it all goes wrong. Mules and horses are energetic beings and pick up on our unconscious thoughts, our our body language, our movements. Being mindful of this is the best way I found to prevent the bad from happening. So don't worry about the shit that might happen. Put a plan together and take steps so they hopefully don't happen. But when they do, just handle it then and move on. End quote. Sorry for the long-ish introduction for those who just want to get straight to the good stuff, but I really think it's important to give a little backstory and 
yeah, now with that little quote out there, I hope you enjoy this episode and I will see you on the other side. All right. Welcome, Trent. Thank you so much for being our second guest here on the podcast. And I think this is going to just become maybe an annual chat for us, like check in. Yeah. Because when I spoke with you last year, I had no idea that this was going to evolve into a podcast. Um, But it's pretty exciting for me to see where you're at and sort of inspire people even more through the healing and horsemanship community. Yeah. Um, Wow. So, you know, the journey down this path kind of started in earnest with the the knee-jerk reality of dad passing away in 2014. And when that happened, um, it just kind of set in motion this desire in me to go walk about and just say, see you later. Um, I'm going to jump on my horse and choose a direction and go. And the more I prepared for that and thought about that, the more of my dad's words, you know, just kept replaying in my head. Uh, whatever you do, do it with a purpose. And I realized that me selfishly just going walk about wasn't going to do anybody any good other than myself, which is, don't get me wrong, very important to to do. You know, one self care is probably the most important thing. But we are a community on this planet, and there's a greater community of the ataxia, um, the people that are affected by ataxia. So I wanted to couple those two together, and the idea of riding from Mexico to Canada along the Pacific Crest Trail um, was planted, and then just through kind of a happen chance, I ended up at a BLM Mustang uh, sorting facility, just kind of looking at animals, and I thought to myself, well, sweet, there's my answer for what I want to focus this on, which direction I'm going to take this. Yeah, I could just grab my quarter horse and plot down the trail, or I can take an untouched animal and train it for six in six months and then go down the trail, um, kind of setting everything apart from everyone else. You know, it's one of those things that the more unique you are, the greater chances of a conversation you have. And that's what really we really need to be having is good, solid conversations. And I wanted to have as many people ask me questions as what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And then I was able to talk to them about ataxia and the the complications with it. Um, <clears throat> so there then led me down to the fact that I needed a, a better saddle. You know, I'd been... I had five, six different saddles in my life, um, you know, from a Slick Fork Wade to an Australian saddle to a McClellan saddle to a Bronx saddle, you know, all these different ones. And each one had its elements that I liked, but each one equally had elements I disliked. But primarily was the weight issue. He couldn't get a saddle that was lightweight and strong enough. You know, that was built in a traditional Wade style saddle. When I did go to a saddle maker to ask him to 
to build me this saddle that I had drawn out on paper. You know, he was like, yeah, we can do that. A little un untraditional for today's standards, but I'd do that for you. And I asked him how much, and I said, that is way too much money. I cannot afford that. That's more money than I have set aside for this entire Pacific Crest Trail ride I have at the time. Um, which, interestingly enough, is the same, basically about as much as I, I charge today for a saddle, because, yeah, it, it does take that amount of money you know, in time and materials. So he was not off base. I just couldn't afford it. But what I could afford was my dedication and time and building, learning to build a saddle myself and, and going through that process. Um, in doing so, it's led down this it's just continued the journey in that once the ride was over people you know they obviously noticed the saddle and they said well that's pretty unique i'd like to have one and i said okay well let me think about it and after the ride was finished i still wanted to be able to donate money to the ataxia foundation which in the end we ended up raising about twenty five thousand dollars through the through the Mexico to Canada ride through donations and then auctioning off the horses at the end minus minaret um, and I had my first real commercial customer eagerly want a saddle and I said I'd do it and I built it and after I built that one and got paid for it I said well heck here's a really good way to be able to continue to donate to the foundation by dedicating 3% of all proceeds from my saddle shop to the Ataxia Foundation. So we set up a continuing portal through the National Ataxia Foundation where I just keep sending, you know, every item that I sell, 3% goes to directly. And uh, it's pretty great, don't really have to think about it. And it allows me to continue to donate, you know, 365 days out of the year. And this whole thing has just kind of kept gaining speed and, and gaining momentum um, to, to a point where we donate about two to $3,000 um, a year to the foundation, which doesn't seem much, but it only goes up because the more items I sell, the more money we're donating. Um, and the saddles have gotten to a point where I'm don't you know I'm I'm building about 12 you know one a month sometimes two a month just to kind of keep up and that puts me pretty much at a full-time saddle makers pace um, but I also have this addiction to packing um, and it's that's one that I just can't satisfy so uh, I still still go off in the mountains and do that and try to maintain my saddle work but um, so here we are today you know I'm been since 2017 was the ride and just been plugging away at the whole thing and just kind of naturally allowing the whole wild in us to develop um, and just dedicating my time to it and, and just trying to continue that message and I've had pretty awesome conversations with people along the way and met some amazing people and um, had the opportunity to work with animals in a way that uh, 
when I was nine years old and first saw my mule, you know, first saw the I saw the first mule, I thought to myself, that's pretty cool. I want to do that, but how am I going to do it? And just by saying yes to any opportunity to to get into this way of life has just kept me going down this path. So here we are. Something that you just mentioned, I think, I think it's a big leap for people to see why you're so committed to a life that's so hard and so not outdated, but like unnecessary, I guess. So one of the beautiful things about the wilderness is the Wilderness Act, um, which when that was passed, um, was it 1968, I think it was, um, in that it states that any work that is to be done in the wilderness Primitive technology with primitive skills must be utilized. So that eliminates <clears throat> all internal combustion engines of any kind, whether it's electric. Um, I should say it, it eliminates motors and engines of any kind, um, obviously, because electric motors don't internally combust, but it's a motor nonetheless. So e-bikes, um, chainsaws, ATVs, Anything of that nature cannot be in the wilderness. I mean, we wanted to preserve, Congress wanted to preserve what makes America so unique is that we have this vast landscape and so much of it is untouched compared to other parts of the world. So that then means that as long as we have trails and as long as we have people going into the wilderness, for whatever reason, we will always have a need for packers to be able to support the crews that maintain those trails. Those trails don't necessarily have to be maintained by the Forest Service. I do a lot of work with the uh, PNTA, the PTC, um, all these private nonprofit groups that they come in and volunteer their time to maintain trails, maintain bridges, rebuild bridges. Because if we don't, then we lose that access. Once we've lost the access, it's kind of gone forever. Um, you know, all that access was built by men and women that were tougher than 90% of the people on the planet today. And they carved into the, into the countryside these thoroughfares. And now it's our job to maintain that using these primitive skills and technology. That being said, a packer is a dying breed. There's fewer and fewer of us left. There seems to be a slight uptick with the younger generation kind of going, oh, hey, that's pretty cool, kind of doing the same thing that I did when I was nine years old and saying, like, you can do that, right on. Um, so hopefully that uptick continues, and that's kind of a fuel for the wild in us and this project is to keep people informed you know it's like congress or anybody else in the city um that are voting on measures that are going to impact the wilderness their vote is going to be decided on how much time they've actually spent in the wilderness if they don't know it's there they're not going to care for it you know it's not something that they see so and maintaining these trails and maintaining the access so that people can get out there and they actually understand what they are voting for and protecting, 
um, you know, that's a really, really, really important element of this of this job for me as a federal employee. Um, <clears throat> so as long as we keep that access open, as long as we keep getting people back there, people understand the value of the wilderness, um, and inspiring and letting people know that this way of life actually does exist and people actually do go into the backcountry with mules and most of the people when they ask me about my job they say well i didn't know you could do that you know it's just not something that's in front of their face so through that through the social media through the marketing um it's just it's kind of more of an educational thing to get it out there and say hey this way of life did exist it was the without it you know, 100, 200 years ago, nothing was happening, and it still exists in the exact same way today. We use the same tools, we use the same knots, we use the same hitches, same practices. I would probably say we're better to the animals <laughs> than we were 200 years ago, uh, just through care um, and a better understanding that they're not a machine, they are a sentient being, and we need to connect with them on that level. Um, versus just running them into the ground. Not saying that that's what was everyone was doing back then, but there was definitely a mindset back then. Um, yeah, you know, we just we're here, and and uh, there, there's there's a need. There's always going to be a need for this way of life, and and that's the drive is for me to to continue doing this way of life, living this way of life. It, for me, it kind of comes from it comes from a from a time that you know I wasn't born born in. You know, I, I definitely feel that my great great grandfather is kind of living. You know, as they say, the ancestors they get to live through um, their kin, and I do feel like that's going on with my great grandfather Patrick Henry. He packed here uh, in Roslyn. Um, Washington, which is just south of me by a couple hours. Um, that was back in 1860-something. And on the livery stable, we ha we share the same birthday. And we kind of look similar from the pictures that I've seen. Ever since I saw my first mule, um, I went on my first pack trip, everything just made sense. And like, this is, I feel like this is what I'm supposed to be doing as life does, takes you in a million different directions. And it took me a minute to, to actually make this way of life my full-time way of life. Um, and, and it's just one of those things that it, it just clicks with me. I just, I understand it and it makes sense. And I never feel like getting up at four in the morning is going to work. Getting up at four in the morning is going to go play. So you know, you make your you make your work your play and you'll never work a day in your life. Completely. And I think there's a lot of romanticizing. I don't know if you know about that show Yellowstone, but there's like uh, a huge upswing and in interest in like the cowboy way of life and like the prequel 1883 and it it shows the hardships and it's brutal, mm -hmm. you know, and it dramatizes it for sure, but I think just there's this theory out there that's becoming more prevalent called evolu evolutionary mismatching, where we literally have a grief or sort of a mental 
illness almost or some kind of sickness because we feel like we were born in the wrong century or the wrong time. Mm. And we see how our ways are actually impacting the planet. So there's that, like we want to just literally go back. Mm -hmm. But then I'm imagining, you know, like you said, the people who are our ancestors who are way more tough than us. I wonder if they would look at us and feel like let down that we've just succumbed to all of the luxuries and like comforts of the world or if they'd be like, well, I don't blame them. How do you choose what you want to preserve? And then what's like a modern necessity that you're like, okay, I can I can make allowances for that. Yeah. I would say, man, there would be a percentage for sure of the population back then that would look at us today and with extreme disappointment. You know, those were the mountain men and women that they opted to live in in the um in the back country, you know, and out in the unknown and live in the wilds. And they were totally happy with the bare essentials and whatever they can harvest from the land. There's still people like that today, mm-hmm. but as a, as a population and as a, as a culture society, I think the, um, the people back then would probably be given us high fives. Like, dude, you guys crushed it. You, you know, we wanted to progress. We wanted to get away from, you were steam heading forward. It was progress, 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 progress at all costs. You know, it, it, there was no, there was no concern. You know, at that time, our understanding of the world was pretty small. It was pretty minute. You know, we just saw the world and the planet as just this thing to consume and get out of the way to progress. But now, <clears throat> in this day and age, we we've reached a point where we've realized that actually to go forward, we have to go backwards. Um, we now see the damage that we've done just from consuming and consuming and trying to create all these luxuries. Um, and where you got Yellowstone in 18, whatever the, the, the show is called now, the prequel to it. And it's romanticizing that life of, yesteryear that's hitting on something that's more of a romance to us but i think also a realization that we're really working hard to destroy this planet and to go back to simpler ways is is kind of what we have to do um Mm -hmm. so it's hard I, i think to answer your question i think as a whole people back then would be pretty stoked on what we've accomplished today hmm. without knowing what we've, the damage we we've caused um, just because of their mindset back then. And what we've given up really that yeah. most of us don't know where our food comes from. Don't yeah. know how to forage for medicine and, and that feeling of connection. I think that really is this is what stems from, our lack of health and vitality, just our disconnection from the earth. So yeah, I really love just the name of your business, The Wild in Us. And I've given that word so much thought over the years. I did my dissertation on perceptions of wildness and mustangs and wild horses mm-hmm. because they're not scientifically wild, right? They're domesticated beings. Mm-hmm. And we talked a bit about mustangs last time, which was really fun, but 
the wildness in us that we live in such tame civilized manners now and we have such profound expectations of ourselves and of our horses mm-hmm. so how what is the wild in us to you and how do you think that's going to help save us from the road that we're on a sort of impending doom mm, that's a good question well <clears throat> the name the wild in us um kind of came to me when I was uh, driving back from the must from the Mustang facility after spending some time and and studying these animals and that realization that uh, even though we've developed all these creature comforts and we moved into the cities and we've um, forgotten a lot of this inherited knowledge um, it's still in in every part of us you know in every single one of us we are, the system. We are part of the system. We're not part of the system. And we're, not, we're not removed from it. We are part of it. Um, as romantic and as powerful as you think we humans are, at the end of the day, when we die, we're being eaten by worms. We're going back into the earth, um, whether we're cremated or just buried in the ground. So at, at the fundamental base, we are as much of the system as the system is us. And so if that's true, then we all have in us the wild um, being, the wild nature that got us to this point. Some of us have forgotten to listen to that, but it's still there. It's talking, it's that inner voice in you telling you to, to, to go do these things, to go into the wild. We just have to shut up and listen and listen to it and, and say yes to it. Um, and so that's where that term comes from. And for me, why why I ended up naming this is that it's all it's within us. It's within all of us. You just have to listen to it. And how do you think that differs from how people say wildness is like an uncontrollable, like a wild horse that you're trying to tame? How do you distinguish it? Like when you're rewilding yourself, you know, how do you distinguish that from something that's bad or anti anti-society sort of? Or anti-relationship, you know, because to have a relationship with a horse, you need them to cooperate with you. Not that you need to dominate and mm-hmm. force them, mm-hmm. but you need them to listen to you more than their survival instincts at times. So it's like, it's a tricky liminal space to be. But I think, yeah, how do we make that word free from those associations that it's like being wild is being uncontrollable or, you know, impulsive and reckless, Sure. You know, I, I think it's it's down to the perspective one has onto it. Uh, you can look at the word wild as in like Tasmanian devil spinning circles and destroying the living room um, and totally unleashed and un- you know, out of control. Or, or you can look at the word wild and the wilderness and what it means to, to exist as it, it within the wild and, and everything that is in the wild meaning outside of our our creature comforts it exists because it's taken opportunities it's an opportunity you know you watch how a tree grows a tree is a completely wild thing it's doing its own thing but it's in sequence with everything else around it um there's nothing that controls it it makes its own decisions but it's in harmony. 
So that to me is where the word wild comes from. And if someone wants to have the perspective of Tasmanian devil, then you're never going to understand what that word means. You just, you have to change that perspective. Um, so whatever that takes in you, you know, change it, do that thing. I think a lot of people don't have direct experiences with wild Mustangs, like mm -hmm. similar to how you did for your Pacific Crest Trail ride, like taking a previously untrained horse and getting them ready for like the journey of a lifetime. But I think people think maybe the training process is going to be smooth or this or that. And so when a horse doesn't conform to that, similar to how a domestic horse would, I think that's when people get into like, they get afraid of these impulses and the wildness in horses, which exists in all of them, right? But mm -hmm. you really, I think, are an example of embracing living with fear and mm -hmm. not letting fear control you. And actually, I have one of your Instagram posts saved where you said, in packing, we plan for the worst and hope for the best. Accidents will happen. No one is immune to wrecks. There's endless possibilities to get hurt three days away from anything. And yeah, how do you how do you deal with that on a daily basis and maybe learn to cope or coexist with that fear, but not let it stop you from these things where you're like, well, I, I might not make it out of here alive, you know? Well, I mean, fear, first of all, fear is not a, um, it's not an innate thing. We're taught fear. We're taught to be afraid. Um, and I see that with my nieces and nephews, my little cousins, um, where as little kids, they are bonkers. They're crazy. You know, you watch these things on the ski hill and they just want to go straight. They want to do what I do today and just go straight and go as fast as you can. Um, cause a, they haven't had the wreck or B, they haven't had a parent tell them that you're going to die if you do that. And, or you're going to break a leg or you're going to do this. So they're living their truest, purest life at that point, you know, because they just, they don't know. Um, so if we can uh, stop teaching that to kids, man, we'd be really cool as a society today and be, there'd be way more people doing way more awesome things. But fortunately, we don't. So we get taught fear. Um, and whether it's a good thing or it's a bad thing, I don't rightly know, but I think mostly it's it's a bad thing to, to teaching fears, but it's also self-preservation. Um, but if, so if we know that fear is is taught to us, then we also know that we can unteach it from ourselves and not not pay attention to it. Um, and that saying everything you want in life is on the other side of fear, it's constantly replaying in my head. Yeah, I do do a lot of things that uh, most people would be completely petrified about, and it doesn't register with me. Because I know if I react to that, that's when I'm going to get hurt. That's when I'm going to get killed. Um, because if I change my perspective to a fear-based perspective, my energy now has completely changed the people around me, the animals around me, they're all going to pick up on that and they're going to 
um, change. And that was something that became very, very clear to me working with wild mustangs is that just a simple emotional shift in me can completely change the whole outcome of the event of what we're what we're trying to accomplish. You know, taking a step back and breathing and letting that exhale out, you then saw the horse do the same thing. He's okay. You're okay. I'm okay. Um, so it's just uh, it's something that it's a constant management of of what you actually want to do in life. Do you want to be afraid all the time and not? Um, have these have the human experience or do you want to say yeah that's a scary thing but I'm still going to do it uh, because of what's on the other side of it the reward um, is is what I want I don't want to sit here and stare at that thing and be afraid of it I want to be able to talk about the stories that came from it um, so it's just a it's a mental conscious decision yeah I'm afraid, but I still do it anyways. Yeah, I think that might keep a lot of people from the wilderness, you know, and and just maybe going on a couple hour long hikes or even not not ever going out on horseback or even walking a horse in mm-hmm. in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. And there's already so much fear that comes up in the arena where we know as humans that whatever we're feeling, the horse is going to reflect that a hundredfold. And so if we're feeling that fear and it, it sometimes is hard, especially when you're starting to distinguish between a fear like, okay, time to push past it or something like something's not right. I'm going to listen to that and maybe get off and then get back on. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how like you say that you did not grow up doing the packing and, and the craftsman thing and that really just came later in life. So how did you even trust when it was time for you to go off and, and fully commit to that life and no looking back? Or, or do you even still have moments where you're like, what the hell am I doing? Why did I, why did I get into this? No, I, my, my biggest moments are um, when my ADHD uh, kicks in and I feel like I haven't done enough. You know, it's like I have a list of things that need to accomplish um, and I set a, a, a bar that's just ridiculously high. And so then my anxiety kicks in because I didn't reach that, that bar. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, the craftsman thing that I've always done, done that. And that I've, whether it was a duct tape wallet or um, female clay or whatever, I've always made things. You know, that was something that... And, at the earliest age really brought me down to center was to be able to do that. And in in high school, ceramics filled that niche for me. And then photography filled that for me. Um, I dabbled a little bit of woodwork, but when I got to leather and working with that, that was when I kind of found that medium. I said, okay, this I can, this, I like working with this. This is a medium I can work within. Um, it ticks all the boxes for me. Um, so there's never been any question of what am I doing with that. It's always, it's always felt like this is what I, sh- 
I should be doing. Um, not growing up in the packing world, um, around horses, um, again, that goes back to the first pack trip I, I went on, and it just made sense. Um, and it wasn't until later in life when I learned about my great-grandfather um, and his life story, and I was like, ah, well, that's why. Okay, now I get it. Um, I don't, I don't need to question it. And, um, I've never really also gone through life questioning those decisions, whatever career path I was on at the time. It was, there was something that I needed to learn from this. Um, and so you just let it run its course. And then when the universe says, no, you should turn left, just go ahead and turn left and, and go down that road and see where it takes you. Um, so yeah, I've never, I've never had those, those doubts of what the heck are you doing, man? Um, I guess if anything, I would have those doubts because they would be financially, but they would be financially, uh, um, would be the source of them is that we live in a society that costs a lot of money and this way of life doesn't pay you much money and so when you're going at the end of the month going, well, how am I going to pay my bills um, but still it's not something inside me saying go find a better job that pays you more money because I know then I'd be really really upset at myself because I'd be doing something that I I'd be just working to live not living you know not the other way around is that an answer to that yeah, I think I think I've seen a lot of people have really gnarly accidents because they weren't listening to that. Like you said, when the universe says turn left, you're like, okay, sure, I'm I'm going and you're mm -hmm. listening. And I'm starting to reframe how I think about pain as pay attention inside now. Mm -hmm. And that nothing ever happens randomly. So even when we go through the most brutal nightmarish event. And then we're laid up or, you know, we can't even go on with our life how it was. It's because we're meant to go down this different path. And so mm -hmm. even, even coming to grips with that and you talk about your dad, you know, watching him degrade and not be able to access anything that he loves, like his, his mental faculties still being fully intact, mm -hmm. but his body not being there. And so I think you have a very different perspective on how you just need to do the damn thing like yeah. now while oh, you yeah. still no. have the ability <clears throat> that's for sure i uh, i recognize that uh probably better than most people that a lot of what i of who i am today and what i do today is because of of my dad um it is because watching him die for slowly die for 18 years if that doesn't have a profound effect on you then man, you, you might as well be dead inside because <laughs> it just, it, it really, really, really did um, completely flip my outlook on the world on its head. Um, I've always been the type that if I'm going, if I want to do something or say I'm going to go do something, I'm going to go do it. You know, and, and my mom, she learned pretty early on that if Trent says he's going to do something, don't tell him he's not going to do it. 
because he's just going to figure out a way to get around whatever barriers you put in front of him, and he's going to still do it. So she always says, whatever, you know, just kind of laugh at you and, and off you go. Um, so you watch your father slowly get imprisoned um, in his body, and he can't do the things, and he's sitting in his wheelchair, and his excitement is watching you ride out of the out of the driveway on his motorcycle. Like that's the pinnacle of his day. He knows he can't do it, but he gets to watch his son go do the thing he can no longer do. That evolves into putting a sidecar on the motorcycle so that he can then come along, right? So you're pulling away out of the out of the um, driveway, and you're looking back, and you're seeing your dad sitting in his wheelchair with a massive shitting and grin on his face. And I can't help but think, I better do this as much as I possibly can in this very short span of life that I have, because that might be me. Um, and for the layman's person that doesn't have this disease that's in their family, it's not necessarily to think about a disease that might put you in that wheelchair. It's just life, you know, at any moment, it all could be over for us. We are extremely fragile beings as far as what's you know out there in the world. Can we live in the, in the environment like the Arctic with the polar bear? No, not unless we bring an outside source, right? So um, there's a lot of things out there that want to kill us. Um, and that can happen at any moment. You have no idea. So... Why do I want to limit my life when at any moment I can die versus just actually living my life every moment and as much as try to, to, to take in as much experience as I possibly can? I choose that one. I choose to take in as many experiences as I can, um, constantly asking plenty of myself so that when I do end up in a wheelchair or if I do end up dying, I'm satisfied. You know, I'm satisfied with my life. Whatever, whatever that is for you, you know, awesome. Just make sure that you're doing as much as you can. Well, I think the most frustrating thing for me is when I come across people who don't have a clear purpose. I don't know if it's our society or some people are just born maybe without a clear purpose and they have to go through years of trials to to find something, but I, I do feel strongly there has to be a purpose for everyone. Like we're not put on this planet randomly and we have our lessons that we need to learn. Mm -hmm. But I think it's so frustrating just to see a life that's like lost, you know, what would you say to somebody who's just like, not even somebody who's restricted mentally or physically, but just somebody who's not sure about their purpose and sort of wants to like let let the world pass them by sort of thing. Um, a lot of, I think a lot of that sort of um, non, not being driven, seemingly lost, stems from the pressures that society puts on people and that we have to, we have to do, we have to hit these benchmarks we have to do these certain things. 
Um, and they feel like that's impossible, you know, it's impossible for, for them. Whatever is the thing that's holding them back, it's um, money or or where they were, were from, you know, the environment that they were raised in. And so it just kind of continues to build to becoming a handicap for them. Um, and that's because they're listening to what society expects out of them. But if they dr just dramatically lower their expectations, everything then becomes a hell of a lot clearer at that point. Um, you're then doing it for yourself. Um, you know, you're kind of being, you're being a little selfish, which is a good thing to a point. Um, but that's the biggest thing is that people I come across, they say they can't, they can't do, they can't do this thing. They can't go, um, down that path for, for that massive life changing event. Um, because they have to do this, they have to do that. And those are all things that society's telling them they have to do, right? So if we just remove those expectations and get back to what life was before, then I think their path will start to become a little bit clearer. But until then, they're never going to see it. They're never going to be able to, to get on it and find, find their, their, their path that they, they should be on. Yeah, I think that's so relatable. And we'll circle back around to horses. But um, it's like there's that crazy horse person stereotype, because you don't need horses. They're not food. They're not transportation, unless you're doing sort of the like primitive packing thing, right? You don't mm -hmm. technically need them. And they become a hobby in our society. So it is like, embracing whatever purpose that you have and not letting anyone tell you that's not yielding the result that you're supposed to have. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious how you view horsemanship because what you do with horses and you work with mules a lot is so different. So just the, the relationship, I think maybe many people would assume that to do that kind of thing that you'd have that like, stereotypical cowboying attitude of like just getting the job done and like not considering the horse as much but um in our last conversation you really talked about the relationship and like putting in all the time it takes to get mm -hmm. the horse as a willing participant mm -hmm. so yeah how how do you define horsemanship and can you talk a little bit about about the pitfalls that maybe we fail our horses in doing things a certain way in horsemanship. Mm -hmm. So the biggest pitfall is we've, we've determined that they're not an essential thing. They're not food. They're not a mode of transportation. You know, society today tells us that they're an obsolete item. And so therefore owning it is an, is a total luxury. Get rid of that line of thinking. Um, Yes, they are a mode of transportation. Society tells us that we need to jump inside of this metal box and put a bunch of petroleum product to get from A to B, and that is the only way to get there. The only way is on this paved road um, burning fuel. That's not true. 
we're a really unusual country in that we have gone full bore ahead with the automobile and have determined that there's no other way to get around. Um, we've designed our entire infrastructure around that idea to the point where trying to, to get from point A to point B on horseback is really, really, really hard, man. It's really dangerous um, traveling down these roads. You, know, you have Mule, the man that goes by Mule, um, John, who's been going up and down the West Coast for the last 32 years with his animals. He's been arrested. He's been nearly hit by vehicles. So have I. And it's all because we are forced onto these thoroughfares that have been determined to be only suitable for cars. And they tell us that you can't do this. You can't, you can't, you can't. But there are, take England, for instance. England has bridleways. You can get around um, just as easily on horseback as you can cars. It's going to take you longer, but they have a designated path through shared ownership, you know, private and public land. And they've decided that as a society, we're not going to lose this way of, you know, this mode of transportation. So you still have cultures like the gypsies that exist, that they've got their wagons, they've got their cob horses, and they completely live off of that. They live like John does today, as if it was a totally normal thing. We've made it, we've stigmatized it because we want people in vehicles. You know, it drives our economy, it drives this country. But we failed ourselves as failed ourselves as a society by demonizing horses out of as a mode of transportation. Um, and horses are food. You can eat them. <laughs> Surprisingly enough, they're made of meat. <laughs> we have just decided through imposing our human emotions onto these onto horses that we cannot eat them. But you can't. If you really wanted to, you can't. There's nothing stopping you. They're not going to kill you. You're not going to get sick. It's not like some, you know, unicorn that if you eat its flesh, you're going to turn into this demon or something, right? It's just, it's a horse. <laughs> so we've put all these things onto it, right? Um, and if we take if we take those thing all of those elements away now we're now we're living with it uh, we're not yeah we're not demonizing it so um, I guess I kind of forgot what the question was I went on a tangent there <laughs> oh so how do you define horsemanship right there it is so horsemanship um, you remove all of those things. Um, away from it and now horsemanship it, it's it's a connection you know it's it's uh their legs become become your legs right um and so this this like cowboy mentality of just getting it done and forcing your way through um can you still do that today sure are you going to get what you want out of the animal no you're not 
you know, as we've developed as a society, so has our greater understanding of their minds and how they work. So we can choose to be ignorant to that and stay with the old ways, or we can be cognitive of it and realize that if we want a greater relationship with them, then, then we need to look at them differently. You know, and that's the, you know, it, the American cowboy comes from the vaquero. Um, the vaquero is a Mexican cowboy that literally lived out of their saddle. Um, they did certain things certain ways and are, you know, even right back down to the word rodeo. The word rodeo comes from rodeo, which is Spanish for round. Um, you know, they would bring their cows, bring the cows down off the mountains and just keep circling them. And eventually the cows learned to gather at this particular tree in a circle and they just went around them. That was the rodeo. Um, and then we turned it into a game. But for the vaquero, it was just, it was a partnership. It was the way of life. You know, we're, we're teaching these cows this pattern um, because I know its needs and it, I'm taking it to, to the needs. You know, I'm showing, it's, I'm showing it, it the way um, and working with the animal and not against it. We've kind of moved away from that in our culture but it all it's all there as a base you know that was our foundation so for me that's what a being a horseman is is not something that you you don on a pair of boots and you go buy a kenny chesney hat and now you're a cowboy and you sit on a horse and now you can call yourself a horseman a horseman is much much more than that a horseman is it's a way of life um it's a mindset it's it's a connection um, it's an understanding that we're going to be working in a partnership here to be able to get the thing done. Not, I'm going to force you into this to get the thing done. Well, I want to come back around to the, um, horse meat conversation because I'm sure a lot <laughs> of people like in shock, just horrified at that idea. <laughs> But um, not that you're advocating people eat horses, right? But it is it is possible. And in Europe, it's really common. And mm -hmm. I have a friend in the Netherlands who said that just, you know, the neighborhood ponies at like the little pony schools, if they didn't have, you know, deworming medication or they didn't have any illnesses after they passed, they would be eaten because why waste that good meat mm -hmm. when you don't live in like a very abundant place with a lot of other foods then yeah why waste that but um it was interesting during my my program researching the um the mustang sort of evolution in north america i came across these pioneer diaries talking about the worst nightmarish incident that they've had which is when they basically got stranded you know, they're trying to cross this desert and they get stranded for one reason or another. And they had to, the soldiers had to eat the horses and 
that haunted them for the rest of their days unlike killing another human being like mm -hmm. they just the weight of that i thought was so fascinating like even back then it was just such a taboo mm -hmm. for our society to eat horse meat so i just wanted to touch on that a little bit mm -hmm. yeah it's just kind of funny stigma that we've put on on it as a society as an american culture that doesn't exist really anywhere else um you know and yeah you you do have the the deworming buttes you know those those drugs that we do give horses um but in actual fact you ask any vet and say hey when is this going to be out of the system and they'll say 15 days 30 days and it's no longer in in the meat and it's completely safe to eat um but we have this ability or we we as a society yeah we definitely have put this a stigma on eating horses that it, it definitely can get to one's psyche and and really affect them you know so we've we've developed this relationship with this animal and now we feel like we're we're eating our dog right man's best friend so yeah it's it's a hard thing to to get over um and it's not for everybody i guess but if if you need to do it you know, it's like, why, what, why let that go to waste? If you're uh -huh. literally going to die without, yeah. and your horse is already dead or, you know, yeah. an accident on the trail. But it is like, to me, it would be worse than say you're on a stranded desert island and you have the choice between eating like your human buddy and your best friend dog and your mm -hmm. horse. Like mm -hmm. in what order I feel like I'd rather eat the human than the dog. <laughs> I know that's really horrifying to even think about. And of course, like, you never know what you would do. But yeah, sure. It is that that cultural taboo around it is so strong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and that's one of the things with the Mustangs. Uh, I know it's been put forward as a solution to to their to the plight of the mustang um overpopulation is to uh turn them into to the food production and on some level um you know that that becomes really tricky because of the, okay well how do you how do you go about managing that because if all of a sudden we started eating all the wild horses we're not going to have any wild horses left you know, and that's why 1973, the Mustang Act was was passed and put the BLM in charge of it because they were being shipped off um, to Mexico or to Canada for food. They were being uh, wrangled up by ranches, and we saw the population dwindle down to to nearly extinction. And then they they put a complete stop to that. And now we've gone in the reverse where we have too many. Um, and we're not domesticating enough of them fast enough, right? They're producing faster than, than us humans have interest in domesticating them. So if they're still producing, well, how, how, do, we, how do we manage that population? And we've decided that putting them inside of a corral and a holding facility and just feeding them for the rest of their lives, that's the solution. Now, if I was a horse, though, 
what would I rather do? Be imprisoned in a corral, uh, never seeing the wild again, and just eating alfalfa for my whole life, or be killed and eaten. I think I'd choose to be killed and eaten because that wild in me would just, I'd be dead anyways. In both scenarios, I'm dead. So why don't we do that, you know? But then then there's that question of how do we manage that that con that rate of consumption if we were to go down that path. Yeah, that did almost decimate their numbers back in like the pet food industry boom when we were right. just canning dog food. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I've heard people proposing that as a solution for the BLM's program, and they literally get death threats oh, yeah. because the advocacy groups are so against it. And not that I want to see that happen either, but you have to you have to be willing to not only think outside the box, but think in their perspective, and we'll never really know. But I think when you do consider they're a truly wild animal, and when death is presented... Like, what do wild animals do? They fight or they flee or they freeze. And when death is imminent and they can't escape a predator, right? Their whole body is flooded with those endorphins. Mm -hmm. And so they don't, they're numb. They're not, they're in a different place. They're dissociated. Mm -hmm. And then if they can't escape, you know, they'll get away and they'll process that and they move on because they're in the moment. But with us, when a death threat is presented, we get like the remnants of, shock and disbelief and trauma that really set in because we're not in touch with that wildness anymore like we don't just shake things out how a wild horse would so yeah you think about what if they were being hunted like they'd learn to not come close to humans in the wild anymore and I know in mm -hmm. some territories they do they come too close where it's like a danger to them oh yeah and you then being though and they're everywhere <laughs> yeah, Nevada. It's yeah. But then you hear about the um, people going out with like AK-47s and just gunning them down. So it's it's not good for them to come that close for mm -hmm. their sake. Mm -hmm. And then it's just such a mess. So it is important to think about every option, you know, and what's best for them. Well, if they could just be on the land being wild right that's ideal. yeah 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 but you know we've we've done this thing um where we have dramatically changed the landscape um by becoming top predator right so we've become top predator on this planet but we've determined that some animals um are no longer prey so um we've decided that some rules apply to some and other rules apply, don't apply to others so we've created this situation where um, it's gotten pretty intense to where we are now with the wild horses not being hunted by a natural predator. Um, you know, we decimated our wolf population, our, our cougar populations, not in all areas, but in some, because of various other industries um, and fear. You know, we just, we don't want to, walk out our back door thinking that something's going to eat us you know we're the ones that are doing the eating they're not eating us right so for those reasons we've we've shifted the balance of of the natural order of things and we now have this thing that is really good at procreating um and it's it just it just keeps growing and growing and growing but we've decided that we can't 
hunt it. We can't consume it. And then, like you say, they're no longer afraid of us and that they will then wander through through town. And I was actually, I don't know, it was a couple, three, four years ago, I was driving through Reno, outskirts of Reno, and it was the first time I had come across a wild horse in town. And I drove by and I thought, oh, shit, someone's horse is just out walking. And so then I, you know, we stopped and we got out and we went, we had the horse trailer and we were going to, with the halter and just try to grab it. And as I got closer, I said, oh my God, this is a wild horse. <laughs> this is totally, like, you're, you're totally cool with standing five feet away from me, but you're a wild animal. Um, this is not how this interaction is supposed to go. You should be running away from me right now. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, we've, we've done that. And so maybe you're, I think you might be right. And that if we do, you know, if you're, if you're continuing this mind thought mindset of, of them becoming food, um, that could be a, a good way to manage the population is just through hunting, not actually you know, dog food. That's not the way to go. No, they're going to annihilate them. Um, but here's an opportunity for somebody to feed themselves and to feed their family um, by going out and hunting them as you would a deer or a moose or an elk. You know, the same thing. You know, so. Well, and it's an important line to draw, right? Because we're fine with killing a deer. Some people aren't with hunting mm -hmm. anything, right? But we are a predator. And then you look at mountain lions, like if we're not if we're killing off those populations, then they literally have nothing capping their population. So if we don't, if we don't allow them to be food for something, you know, not necessarily yeah. that I want them to be our food. Yeah. I don't think I could ever eat a horse, honestly, but yeah, it's just our cultural conditioning. And then honestly, then we're left with them in just stockpile feed lots and what kind yeah. of quality of life is that because then other atrocities happen there them getting illness and in injuries are being separated too so it's not it's not a natural life any way you look at it but it's because of our really strong emotions around it that yeah it's the real hold up yeah yeah absolutely and you know you have um like at what point did it be okay what at what point did we decide it was okay for um, the other predators on this planet to consume meat, but for some reason it's not okay for us, even though we're predators and we are designed to consume meat. Um, and that was at and that point happened when when the human emotions got put into the into the mix. You know, we decided that we're not a part of that system. You know, we're above that and and. and how dare we eat that animal because of X, Y, and Z? But in reality, it's it's the it's the actual most natural order of things. You know, it's, it's how this system was designed, um, not this monoculture of feed massive feedlots where we've got acres and acres and acres of of cows just kind of standing around getting ready to be eaten. That's not that system was designed because we wanted a stake every day um, as a sign of wealth, basically after World War II. And now we've got this 
this whole food system that is not sustainable. It's really fragile. Um, and we've moved further and further away from the natural natural order of things. So, Yeah, and not only that we want these luxuries, but we don't want to be a part of seeing what goes on behind like the slaughterhouse doors, where that used yeah. to be every family farm, you'd help process the animal. And not right. that everyone needs to be doing that, but then if you're connected to it, you see exactly the reality of it. And I was mm -hmm. vegetarian for years, so I know... I know the reasons why somebody would abstain from eating meat, but look at how our ancestors lived for thousands of years. And the moment that we put ourselves in these boxes and we decided to bring dogs and horses with us too. Like I had a friend years ago who saw my horses outside unblanketed in the rain. And she's like, aren't you going to bring them into the barn? And it's like, they don't want to be in the barn. They don't like it. Yeah. They, they hear the rain and they get really claustrophobic and yeah. Granted, I just put blankets on them yesterday because we have a really terrible storm here. But it's like if we anthropomorphize to that extent, then we're no longer even seeing ourselves as an animal. And that's when it becomes a big problem because then they're not even animals by extension of relationship yeah. with us. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I get that all the time with uh, my horses. I just got asked last weekend by my, my aunt, you know. Uh, what do you do with your horses in the winter? How do they stay warm? Do you put blankets on them? Do they just live inside the barn? And simply I just say, what do, what does a wild horse do? It stands outside and it puts its back to the wind and it has its natural um, ability to, to generate its own heat through eating or finding shelter from the winds. You know, they've been doing it for 3000 years. Um, or for thousands of years, so might as well just let them them keep doing that. Why do I have to determine that this thing needs a blanket? It doesn't need that. Let it be a horse, and it'll be just fine. Um, if you start making its decisions for it, now you've got an animal that's freaked out, you know, because it's inside a barn and it's here in the rain, and it doesn't understand that. It does not have the ability to understand that the sound is being produced because water is falling from the sky, hitting the roof, making the sound that's freaking me out. They just hear the sound and it just freaks them out. So in, in doing that, we're, we're doing them a disservice, right? So just uh, take the approach of it's been doing this for a lot longer than I have. You know, and, uh, it's got the ability to, to live in this environment comfortably. It adapts to it, right? That's we don't right. have that ability. <laughs> That's what makes us pretty weak. <laughs> I can't just all of a sudden grow an undercoat and be essentially waterproof, right? <laughs> I have to go don on a jacket. Yeah. Yeah, that's what makes the Mustang so brilliant, really. Mm -hmm. Just nature's best design. I had no idea that we were going to talk about all of this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I wanted to ask you more about, you know, your unique experiences, but um, I think we're nearing the end of the time here. So I think most importantly, I just want to hear your definition on how you define health and, yeah, any direction that we can better take care of ourselves by being in relationship with like the wild in us or your whole mission. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Well, I mean, health is both in the physical form and the mental form. Um, I think the mental form is the most important because that's going to determine how the physical reacts. Um, a lot of our ailments are stemmed from just our negative um, outlook on something. Um, so as long as we maintain that 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 um, healthy mindset, then our body is going to be be healthy. If that's going into the wilderness, um, awesome. Do that as much as you possibly can. If that's sitting in front of a computer designing a video game, far out. If that makes you mentally healthy, then you're physically going to be healthy. Um, obviously, don't do any of the, the things in excess, you know, that we've found pleasure in in this, in this physical world, um, other, than, other than the thing that is going to, to give you that mental mental happiness, not, not a drug-induced happiness, but um, an internal drug-induced happiness from your physical surroundings. And um, the more we do that, I think the better off as a society we will be. Yeah, there's lots of ways to find happiness, and we're, I guess, a little bit crazy to have found it in horses and a very uncomfortable existence with them at times but mm -hmm. um, yeah it's always worth it yeah there's just so many other layers <laughs> underneath <laughs> I, wish we, I wish we had days to talk but um so how can people who want to hear more about your work and everything how can people find you um they can read about my story through my website at thewildinus.com um which also has a link to my online store and then the best way is through social media with the handle The Wild In Us um, on Instagram and follow the story along there, um, whether I'm in the, in the shop or I'm in the backcountry. Um, that's where everything gets laid out on a daily basis. And if you find inspiration in my words or through my um, way of life, then I applaud you, and I, I hope that you, you do eventually uh, find that inspiration um, that is self-sustained um, inside you through, through my way of life. So, All right. Thank you so much, Trent. I look forward to the next chat. Hopefully, it doesn't have to just be an annual thing. Yeah. No, I look forward <laughs> to it as well. <laughs> yeah, whenever you want to uh, set something up, let's do it. Great. Thank you for being here. Yeah, you bet. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Thank you for listening to these stories on healing and horsemanship. If you're moved by this episode, please rate and subscribe wherever you're listening to help the show grow. This show is supported by The Herd. The Herd offers monthly bonuses for members, including access to a growing content library on all things health, wellness, and horses. 
Join today at wildwhaling.com slash herd dash membership. And until next time, I wish you harmony in your health and with horses.